Romans chapter 6, verse 21, talking about first love. Today, if you're new with us, this is the last portion of the book of Ephesians. We started in 2017, February. This is the eighth month right now of 2018. So if you just want to take 12 plus 8, that's 20, minus a month, we have gone through Ephesians verse by verse for 19 months. Give yourself a hand clap for being faithful to God's Word. Amen. We have gone through it all, and today is the last message on a verse, and then guess what I'm going to do next week, y'all? Next week, I'm going to read, in your hearing, in this church, the entire book of Ephesians and break it down. You may be thinking to yourself, that's impossible, Pastor. You preach an hour just on one verse. How are you going to preach the whole book in one hour? You've got to come and check it out. You've got to then come for yourself and see that miracle, but it will be the entire book of Ephesians read in your hearing and explained, and then we'll be moving on to a new sermon series called Worldview, which is going to be real fun and exciting. When we look at the book of Ephesians, we can break it down in two major parts, what he gives us to be heavenly-minded and what to do to be earthly good. The Bible teaches us that we should be so heavenly-minded that we change the earth for good. We're now at the earthly good part, and it's the final greeting. Somebody say first love. Thank you. Look at it. Verse 21, chapter 6. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord. This is the one who brought the letter to the church of Ephesus. Will tell you everything so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Somebody say be encouraged. Thank you. Peace to the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read verse 24 together. One, two, three. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Now, I want you to put this together. This is the ending of the book. This is the last chapter of the book. This is the last verse of the book. And the last word of the book is what? Love. The book ends in love. The book of Ephesians, by most theologians' accounts, is the highest view of a Christian. Paul wrote many letters. Romans is the most theological, but they say that Ephesians gives us the highest view of a believer. And what that means is in Christ, which is the name of this sermon series, we are seated in heavenly places, blessed with every spiritual blessing, sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, literally whittled and handcrafted by God himself to be his masterpiece. We are then called the most endearing persons. You can ever be called a bride and the body of Christ. We are promised things that no one has ever even heard before. We are promised to reign and rule with Christ as a new humanity and to have the world literally see us shining in the glory of God because he said, listen, in the book of Ephesians, that through the church he will make his presence known. So we will be the light bulbs that the world sees the light of Jesus through. When he said, you're the light of the world, he meant it, and he explained it in Ephesians. Come on. And the book ends with a precious verse that says grace, and grace means empowerment, empowerment to prosper. It also means blessing, grace, blessing, empowerment to prosper to all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love, a love that never stops. 
Now, if you want to look at a timeline to understand how the Bible is written, I got it here. I know some of it's small, so look on your notes or the website. To understand how Paul wrote his letters, he gets saved right around the 33 AD after Christ went to heaven, and then he begins to preach the gospel, and he goes to places like Ephesus in the book of Acts, outlining the Acts of the Apostle, but the book of Acts primarily follows Paul, and then it shows you where he meets them when he then gets arrested and writes his letters. So he wrote Ephesians from the jail cell of Rome. That's why he says twice in the book of Ephesians, I am a prisoner for the Lord. Then Paul is martyred in Rome around 68 AD. Now, if you look at right here, just to see it, like I said, it's hard to read the details, but just look at this clump here. This is where all of Paul's letters are written, but guess what? The last book of the Bible is Revelation. All of these were written around 60 AD. The book of Revelation is written around 90 AD. Why am I telling you that? Because in the book of Revelation, John is the last living apostle. The revelation is the revelation of Christ in his church. It's always about Christ in his church. And Jesus gives us the report card on seven of Paul's churches. It's been 30 years later, and now Paul has already gone to heaven, and Jesus is meeting face-to-face with John on the Isle of Patmos, and he's telling him about these churches that Paul went to. Are you ready for their report card? Somebody say, I'm ready. Amen. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. The first church that Jesus mentions in Revelation to give his report card to is what city? What church? The church of Ephesus. This is a special group of people. These are an important group of people. Listen to what Jesus says. This is all Jesus' words here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, to understand what that means, all we have to do is go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, and we see the interpretation of what the stars are and what the lampstands are. Look at Revelation 1:20, the verse before Revelation 2:1. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. How many are happy when something gets explained in Revelation? No more guesswork. Here's the interpretation. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, this is where I wish the word here, angel, would have been translated messenger. Because when you all hear the word angel, you think of something somebody with wings coming flapping down to be with you. That's a misunderstanding and it's also incorrect. Let me help you. Number one, angels don't have wings. Those are seraphim and cherubim. They don't even have names. We don't know them. We know angels like Gabriel and Michael, etc. make appearances in the Bible, but they appear as men, but they're only spirits. We are of earth, of flesh, and of spirit of God's nature as well. So angels are only of spirit. Animals are only of earth. Man is the only one that's of both, of earth and of spirit. Isn't that cool? Just learn something there. So the, the appropriate translation here is messenger. And as you can see, most English Bibles will help you out a little bit because the literal world word is angelos, angel, but that's not how it's meant here. So who are the messengers there? They're the pastors, the leaders. So the seven stars in his hands are the seven pastors. What are the seven lampstands? They're the seven churches. Now go back and understand this. Jesus is talking to these churches, and he's saying, I have every one of your pastors in my hand. 
I'm in charge, and they're listening to me. So you should take serious what a pastor has to say or someone in charge. Amen? That doesn't mean we do everything we, I say because I say it, but if it comes from the Word, we take it serious. And then you should take what you're doing here serious because he says, I walk among the seven golden ca- candle stands or lampstands, and candles were their lamps. So what's a lampstand? It's something you set a lamp on. What was their lamps? A candle. So you can call it a candle stand. And so what should you know? Jesus is here walking among us. Jesus is here in this place walking among us, and I am in his hand. So may say, preach it. Thank you. Now look at verse 2 as the report card continues. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be false apostles and are not, to be apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. How many are happy they didn't tolerate wicked people? How many know you shouldn't tolerate wicked people? How many are happy they tested apostles and found the ones that were fake and phony to be fake and phony? Amen? How many of y'all do that? You're not sending in 1099 to get your holy water, are you? You're not following other apostles that teach false things, are you? They were doing the right thing. So they got two A's there. All right, here's the report card. They get an A for not tolerating wicked people. They get an A for not following false apostles. Let's keep going. Verse 3. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. How many know this church was a persecuted church? Give you some history here. Timothy was the pastor of this church. Eventually, he died in Ephesus. They martyred him. In the story, even in the book of Acts, they arrested them and put them into gladiator arenas to die. And if it wouldn't have been stopped by the Roman government, the mob would have had them killed right there. Now, you have to understand this. This is an important A that they get. They gave their life for Jesus, even if it cost them things. How many believe that's a good thing? How many of you are willing to endure things for Jesus and not give up? Okay, so they got three A's, don't they? They don't tolerate wicked people. They don't follow false apostles, and they've endured hardships. But here comes the next one. Somebody go, ooh. See, here comes something that's going to be a little bit tough. Yet I hold this against you, verse 4. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Think about this. He's not talking to those out there. He's actually talking to people in the church. He's expecting them to hear this on the Lord's Day, read to them on a Sunday. And he's saying, I know this is good about you guys. You guys don't tolerate wickedness. And to put it into our culture, it would be like, I know you're not down with transgenderism, homosexuality, sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, abortion. I know you're not down with wickedness. You don't like the Gucci gang or all these little pump or whatever the next one's name is. I know you're not into those things. And guess what? I know you don't follow Mormonism, Charles Taz Russell, Jehovah Witnesses. We know that you believe that Muhammad was a false prophet. And guess what? He even says, I know you come to church. You don't give up when other people give up. But guess what? I know your heart. And on the inside, I know you don't love me like you used to love me. You see, right here, somebody may say, did you say, God, I don't love you? Because, God, I love you. He said, no, no, I didn't say you don't love me. I know you love me. But what I'm saying is you don't love me like you first loved me. And anybody here has been in a relationship for a time can understand this, especially married people. There are things many of us have done at the beginning in dating and trying to win our spouse over that we don't do right now. And that's what he's saying. He's not saying you don't show up for dinner. He's not saying you don't put food on the table. What he's saying is you're not in love with me like you used to be. And I just wonder, seriously wonder, how many of you are in this place right now? 
This message, first love, I've been preaching for over 20 years. It's one of my favorite messages that I've ever preached in my entire life. The first time I preached it was at my friend's wedding in the Green Mountains of Vermont. He had a simple wedding in a church just like this, but then outside he had a tent, catered food. No big deal, right? Very simple, very inexpensive. The whole thing probably only cost him about two, $300, maybe 500 at the most. But there we could see God's beautiful creation. The church was built on the hill of one of these beautiful green mountains. He had a horse there that they rode on together and took pictures with, with and it was the first time that I actually got to gallop with a horse. And you can almost imagine, because I think I had long hair at that time, me just galloping in slow motion, hair blowing in the wind, the green mountains in the background. But I want to tell you what, on the way there, driving from New Orleans all the way there, many, many hours, I was in the car and I was thinking about what should I preach because he asked me to preach at the wedding. You think I have a lot of children. Now they have 11 in their family. He was my roommate in, in college, Dylan. But it's, this was my favorite wedding I was ever a part of. And it wasn't just because of the green mountains and all the things. It was just a special, humble, beautiful wedding. Like I said, they're still married today, have beautiful children. So we're in the car, and I had the guy drive, and you know we're taking turns driving my car. And I started writing out this message that I'm now preaching to you today. It's going to be a little bit different because it's going to come out of Ephesians. But as I was writing this, God took me to the book called The Song of Solomon. And I don't know if some of you all know, there's a book in our Bible that's actually a love story. Did you know, if you do, raise your hand. How many of you knew Song of Solomon was an entire love story right in the Bible? Okay, about half of you. There is a story that totally puts down and is incomparable to the Romeo and Juliet. It's leap years above that. You want to learn about romance, read A Song of Solomon. Those of y'all who are married, listen to me. Get an English version that is modern that you can understand. Act it out today with your spouse, and Sunday will be a fun day for you. It is a beautiful book. Get it in a modern version. Just do what they do. You all going to have some fun today. You're welcome. So I'm going through the story of the Song of Solomon. And the Song of Solomon, in short, is this, is that there's a powerful man. He's like royalty. He's strong. He's, he's handsome. He's wealthy. And he goes for a girl that's not really all of that. She's somebody that nobody pays attention to. She works in the field. She doesn't have what all the other girls have. But yet he's fallen for her because she's beautiful on the inside first and then through the outside. So she's a woman of character. And it talks about how at first she's very insecure that she doesn't deserve this kind of attention. And she almost thinks it's too good because of all the bad men she's been with before. Because this is a man of integrity. This is a man of wealth. This is a man possibly of royalty. And yet he's coming after her. And the story is beautiful. And there's one scene where he actually comes to visit her at night. And teenagers, don't try this with your girlfriend, okay? But uh, he actually comes to visit her at night and knocks on the door. And it says, it's me. Let's go out. Let's spend the night together. Not breaking God's commands. Let's say it like that. But let's just go out together in, in the evening. And at first, she's so shy. She says, I don't have my makeup on. I don't have my eye, eyelashes on. I haven't got my, my extensions on. I don't want to go out. I smell. I don't got my lotions on. She literally says, I'm not prepared to go out. But he still knocks on the door. He says, I don't care what you look like. Just come out. I'm here waiting for you. But then by the time she comes, he's already left because she took too long. And this is where the story brought tears to my eyes. And now she goes around in the street saying, have you seen my lover? Have you seen my lover? 
And I just wonder how many of us in the church are not desperate for Jesus. We're not really desperate to get up and chase him and to consume all that he has for us. We play cool too often. Well, Jesus, I don't know if I'm ready to go to church. Jesus, all those people are going to judge me. And Jesus is just looking for somebody that just loves him so much. The moment he knocks, they jump out ready to go. It don't matter if we don't have the makeup on. It doesn't matter if I don't look right. I'm coming to chase you. Yes, in that story, I have to see myself as the woman, but it's not transgender. I see myself as the church, in other words, because isn't it something that Paul, the one writing the book of Ephesians, uses the same image that the Song of Solomon brings up, which is a man with his wife. He says it's like Christ with the church. So I'll encourage you to go back and look at it. But that was the first time I preached that message, and now over 20 years, it's one of my favorite messages. Look at verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now here's where it gets serious. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So the lampstand represents the church. He says, but I'll remove it. Does that mean you'll just close the doors? No, it's going back to the idea of God's presence being in the building. When the presence of the Lord left the Jewish temple, it literally was put over the door, Ichabod. And Kabod means glory, and Ich means it has left. The glory of the Lord has left. The Holy Spirit came down with flames of fire and tongues upon their heads. And the idea is representing here, if you don't get right, I'm going to remove the Spirit from your church. I wonder how many churches the Spirit's been removed from, but they still shouting and hollering. I rem- I'm just reminded of places that I've been where they have all the right things. They got the right music. They got the right preaching, the right people shouting when they're supposed to. They got all the good lessons to help you be a better you and experience your best life now. But I have been there and not experienced the presence of God. I wonder if it's because they lost their first love and God said, If you're trying to make everybody feel welcome but not me, I'm going to the church down the road. We shouldn't treat the Holy Spirit as our errand boy to do whatever we want him to do. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the God nature, and he is the person who leads us in what we teach and how we live, and he develops in us his character, the fruit of the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit. And so today, if there can be churches without the Spirit, I wonder if there's any believers here or supposed Christians without the Spirit. And if we were to look at your life, you might look exactly like the Ephesians people. You might say, man, I'm always on point in church. I'm always doing the right things. I don't like wickedness, and I suffer for Jesus. And you may list off all the A's you get on your report card, but I just wonder if there's anybody here today, because you have lost your first love, You don't have a relationship with the Spirit like you used to. And now instead of being led by the Spirit, you're just led by your feelings. And how many know feelings just want to be what? Felt. And we talk about what my feelings are. I feel this and I feel this. The Bible doesn't want you to be led by your feelings but by the Spirit. Let's continue in verse 6. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. How many know it's good to hate sometimes? The Nicolaitans were just false teachers. And he says, I'm glad you hate it because I hate it too. Now look at verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the what is saying. What, thank you, what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you hearing this today? Let me just ask you this. Do you think you're better than the Ephesians people? 
Do you think you're more radical than them, more spiritual than them, that this message wouldn't be true for you or shouldn't be taken serious? No, we better hear what it says, what he says, rather, the Spirit says. Now, notice this. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He promises them an eternal life on the earth. Heaven is temporary, remember. We come back down to rule with Christ, and there we will partake of the tree of life. How many think that's important? So how many are ready to learn about your first love? to never lose it, to have it all the days of your life. Now, to get where we're going here today, let's look back on their lives because he says, you need to repent and do what you did at first. Let's look at the three things in general that they did at first. Let's go back to the book of Acts where they first get saved. You know what they did? They were willing to give everything up for Jesus. Look at Acts 19, 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Watch. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. They confessed their sins. They weren't afraid of it. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. You know how much money they estimate 50,000 drachmas to be? Around $6 million. What's the first lesson that we can learn from them being willing to give up everything? Is if you don't allow, don't allow the things of your past to come back because small compromises can, can create big failures. And what you tolerate today could dominate your life. I don't know where along the line they stopped doing this because they were doing some things right. But somehow there must have been a compromise. And the way I look at compromise is the small little things we do against God's word that we don't think matters. But the devil knows they matter because they're steps towards destruction. Let me give you an example. I'm at church today just like you. Some of you coming to church today was a real struggle. To me, it's not a struggle. But how could me coming to church become a struggle? Well, let's go right where I'm at now. I'm a pastor. This is my job. It's my passion. I love to come to church, but now watch. Church ain't growing like I want it to. I'm going to retire from being a pastor. I'm going to start selling used cars. That's what one of my friends did. See, now I'm not obligated to come. See, one small step. Next step, sometimes with my family of six, we got things going on. It's hard to always come to church. They have other people that can take my spot. I don't always need to be there. You know what? This weekend in particular is really busy because we just had a new child. I've got family from out of town. I don't really need to be at church. You know what? When I come to church, they now judge me. They look at me like I'm not really a Christian anymore. Maybe I just shouldn't go to church. Man, Pastor, you went a long way. But was it a big leap? I can tell you right now this white boy can't jump from here to here. You want to see me try? I can tell you right now it will be messy. Oh, but how do you get somebody to move from here to there if they can't leap it all at once? If you're the devil and he can't get you to worship him, how is he going to get you to worship him? In other words, worship yourself. He's going to have you take small steps away from God. See, right now, I love my wife. I would never have an affair. Having an affair for me is like going to Mars. There are actually people planning on going to Mars. Did you know that? There's astronauts right now planning on going to Mars. That's a reality for somebody. But for me, it is not a reality. Are you tracking with me? That's how I think about cheating on my wife. Why? Because I'm right here right now. This is where I'm at right now. I love my wife. 
She just had my sixth child. She's my hero. She takes care of my kids. But we're not talking to each other as much because she's tired right now. And sometimes when we do talk, she gets on my nerves because she's always asking me to do stuff. I don't really want to be around her like I used to be because when I'm around her, I lose my temper. I'm just going to stay away from the house and do more things outside with my friends. There's this girl looking at me at the bar when I'm there with my friends. I see her. She's a waitress. She comes every Thursday. She's told me she's in a troubled marriage and her husband doesn't listen to her. I say, holler at me, girl. I know you want to laugh, but that's how men commit adulteries. How do you go from there to there? How does a pastor start saying he loves his wife, and all of a sudden he's giving his number to a girl that's a waitress at a bar? Now ask yourself, what small little things has the devil got you believing don't matter right now? Maybe it's the music you listen to. Maybe it's some relationships that you're in. Maybe it's some of the places that you're going. And you're saying, hey, I'm not who I used to be. Come on, give me a break. I'm not as crazy as this guy at the bar. Give me a break. But God is saying to you, that's not you anymore. You're not supposed to be in that place anymore. Oftentimes, if not every time, I see somebody lose their first love. It's never because they took that leap. Every now and then, maybe one out of a hundred, somebody takes a crazy leap, and you're like, where did that come from? But 99 times out of a hundred, it's always those little steps, those little compromises. Do you know there's two ways to put out a fire? There's one, you get a fire hose, and you just put it out. It's done. So imagine you have a fire going on in your backyard, bonfire, or you got a fire pit. Your friends are there hanging out. They leave. What do you do? You want to put it out? Get out the hose. It's done. But how many know there's another way to put out a fire? Just don't put anything combustible on it. Just let it be. And this is where I see even the danger in this church. Pastor, I'm on fire. I love Jesus. Look at me worship. Look at me pray. I even go to my life group. But if you're not doing it for the right reasons in your heart, your fire begins to go out. And yeah, you're still doing the actions. You're still showing up. You're still there. Everybody thinks you're awesome because you hate wickedness. You don't tolerate false apostles. And you're dedicated. People still make fun of you on your job for being a Christian. But in your heart, you stop giving your life to Jesus to burn up. You started keeping back things from the altar, and the altar symbolizes where things die and are on fire. See, oftentimes we say to Jesus on the altar, Jesus, take my fears, take my pain, take all of my misery. But sometimes we hold back. God, I don't want to put my job on the altar because that means a lot to me. God, I don't want to put my money on the altar. I don't want you to burn that up. God, I don't want you to burn up my dreams because my dreams belong to me. And see, God is looking for people who say, God, God, you can have it all. Look, my wallet belongs to you. My job belongs to you. My life belongs to you. See, as long as you're giving something to burn, it will always burn. As long as the Spirit always has all of you, he will be on fire. You will be on fire in all of you. He will consume you. Are you listening? I said, are you listening? It's the small compromises and the things that you tolerate. The Bible says the small foxes come and destroy the vineyard. It's not the big bears. It's not the mountain lions that destroy your vineyard. It's the little foxes. You know, the Bible also says 
that they were willing to suffer for Jesus. We've talked about that a little, but here it is in the passage. They were willing to suffer in Acts 19.29. Soon the whole city, talking about Ephesus, was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Articacus, Paul's uh, traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed them into the theater together. They're ready to kill them publicly. They were willing to die in that moment. Gaius, ready to die. Aristarchus, rather, I've mispronounced his name, it's Aristarchus. Aristarchus, willing to die. But somehow, over 30 years, he's being told, maybe not him individually, but his church is being told, that if they don't get on fire, they'll lose their lampstand. What lesson do we get out of that? Don't be afraid to give up everything to Jesus because it's worth it in the end. My wife uh, and I have always talked about skydiving. It's more me talking about it and her saying she's not going to do it. And I've told her, I'm giving you to the time Bethany turns 18, because Bethany, we're going skydiving on your 18th birthday, right? Let's give it up for Bethany Boopster, my oldest. So we're going. That'll be about 11 years. I'll be 51 years old. Just hoist me out. Even if I get scared, just throw me out the plane, knock me out, do whatever. I'm going out. But here's the deal, because a lot of us deal with fears, and her issue is, I just don't want to do it because I might die. Now listen, I tell her all of the possible rewards she may have of doing it, but every time I tell her the rewards, she always brings up the risk of dying. And no matter how high I put the reward, the risk of dying just always goes higher. So I tell her, here's the reward. You and I will get to share a romantic time together where we're scared out of our mind, but we get drawn closer to each other. We'll always be able to have that. But I might die. Okay. Well, our kids will watch us overcome a fear, and they'll be able to look up to you with courage and be a hero. I did that when I birthed them. I don't have to do this here because I might die. They need a mother more than they need that story. You see, every time I tell her the reward, she tells me the risk. Watch how we do it with Jesus. Break up with that person you're dating. They're not good for you, and trust me. But God, I'll be alone then, and I don't like being alone. See, we put the risk of suffering above the reward of being with Jesus. I wonder if they began to do that. Once again, they're showing up to church, and they're saying, I'm willing to die now in arena, but I wonder if they were willing to die from dating the wrong people all the time. I wonder if they were willing to die to their hopes and their dreams because maybe God wanted to send them out to go reach India because our Christians would go all over the world and they were happy in their home in Ephesus. Maybe they had a good life. It's easy to say you'll give up everything when you don't have much. You got some young adult comes to our church. He's 18 or 19 years old, couch surfing, always spending all night long playing Fortnite, drinking uh, you know, Mountain Dew, passing gas with his friends. Sure, he'll give up everything for Jesus. What does he have to lose? Right? But now you talk to a man that's got a great job, he's in his 30s, good kids, he's paying for private school. Now you say go to the Bible study, too much risk. I got to be ready for work. They might call me in overtime Saturday to work. Can't go to the Friday Bible study, pastor. How many of us, when God tells us to give up something and he says it will be better, how many of us get scared and put the risk above the reward of Christ and his presence? It's fear that keeps many of us from loving Jesus with everything we got. It's fear. Because when we look into the eyes of Jesus, he sees right through us. 
See, oftentimes people will say, man, I want to live for Jesus, but I'm not ready. And I know that sounds noble, but what they're saying is I don't trust Jesus to change me. Because to me, it's not about being ready. Jesus is not that house guest that comes over, kind of like my mom. Where my mom is coming over, it's like, you all better clean the house with me, kids. Mama's coming over here. And even though she said she don't mind the mess, I still want to live up to her expectations. Hello. It's not like to become a Christian, I have to become a Christian first. It's not like I wash my car and then take it to a car wash. It's not like I get myself ready and change myself and then I ask Jesus to change me. Do you understand? I come to Jesus broken and a mess and a failure, scared and not able to do it on my own. And I say, Jesus, save me, change me, empower me, because I'm not going to let my fear hold me back. This last thing that we're going to learn about them is the long passage, but I know you guys can take it. It's powerful. It's in the book of Acts. They were passionate. Somebody say passionate. Thank you. They were passionate about being disciples. That means they were one of the star churches that Paul planted. Listen to how much they loved their apostle. Verse 17, for my li- from Miletus, Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Now notice this. In that region we just learned about here, the only elders that got called to be with Paul before he goes to Jerusalem in this whole region are those men and women from Ephesus. That's how special they were to Paul. Paul had spent the most amount of time there in Ephesus as well. He said, go get me those elders. Verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. And by the way, when he went to Jerusalem, they arrested him, and that's how he got to jail in Rome, and then the Romans killed him. Verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared both to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. How many have heard that from this preacher in this church. Can I hear an amen? Amen. See, that's good preaching right there. Let's keep going. He says, y'all know what I'm about. Verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, Paul says, I'm not going to go on vacation. I'm not going to pick, I'm not picking a place to go like Bahamas because it's awesome. Compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me of prison and hardships. They're facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. See, did Paul think of himself so amazing? No, he said, my life is nothing. It was a gift of God anyway. And I love what one preacher said. If God gave me my gift, he could, gave me the gift of life, God could spend it on bubble gum if he wanted to. But I'm thankful that he spends it on his ministry and on his purpose. Do you understand that? God could say, I own you. Now go be a monk in the Himalayan mountains. You know, go do meditation for the rest of your life. Go be celibate. Don't have sex. Don't have children. If that was real, God could ask you to do that. And so we should never take our lives to be so prideful because we know eternal life is greater. And that's what Paul said. He said, I consider my life worth nothing. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of doing what? Testifying to the good news of God's grace. Good news there is gospel, evangelical on in the Greek. Now I know, look at what he says to these precious people. I know that none of you will know, uh, none that I have gone among preaching, the kingdom will ever see me again. This is it now. He had a prophecy. He's going. They'll never see him again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. That comes from the prophet Ezekiel, where it literally says, and we've heard this in our culture, uh, my hands are clean from the blood, or the blood of men are off of my hands, or your blood is not on my hands. That saying comes from the prophet Ezekiel. Paul is saying that saying, thing. And he's saying, whatever y'all do now, that's on you. My hands are clean from your responsibility now. Do y'all get that? Come on, somebody say, I get it. 
That means whatever I tell you now, you're going to be responsible for, okay? Watch what he says. God, give him a prophetic word here. Because remember, he dies in 60 A.D. 90 A.D. is when it happens in the judgment of Jesus. He had a word before that. He said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, watch this, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Watch this, verse 30. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. He's like, after I leave, people here, here, are going to lie to you and take you away if you're not careful. Look at verse 31. Read these five words together. One, two, three. So be on your guard. One more time. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you night and day with tears. So he says, I care about you, and I'm telling you, and this is what I'm trying to do for you. I'm warning you, be on your guard, because if it can happen in Ephesus, it can happen here. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's why we're called saints. It's because we're sanctified. We're not sinners because we don't sin like we used to. Can I hear an amen? Amen. I have not coveted anyone's silver, gold, or clothing. You yourselves know that with these hands of mine, I've supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions and everything. I did. I showed you that by this kind of work, we can help the weak. Everybody say, help the weak. Thank you. Remembering the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he said, it's more blessed to give to receive, more blessed to give than to receive. And then here he ends by speaking these words. He kneels down with all of them in praise. This is the last time they see him. Remember the letter that we're reading in Ephesians comes from jail, so he never sees them again. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. They accompanied him to the ship. And so what is the lesson that we learn about our passion? Is that we have to guard our passion. Because if we ever let down our guard, one lie can bring us into bondage. But if we keep up our guard, one truth can set us free. You have to protect what God has given you. You can't even let someone in this church take you away. I got stories to tell, but y'all might be a little nosy and try to figure it out and go get into people's business. Can I tell you stories without y'all getting nosy? No, I can't. Y'all just too quiet. I said, can I tell you stories without you guys getting nosy? So that means if y'all get nosy and start snooping around, I'm going to know it was the second service, right? Right? Watch this. We've had people in this church almost commit affairs, two married couples, one with the other one, man and woman. You would have thought at that point they're going to leave the church. This is a crazy environment. How in the world can they come to the same church when the husband almost got with the wife? Now the, now the one of the other one, they're going to fight in the parking lot, right? No, they stayed. They humbled themselves. The two that were sinning repented. Then they went individually to counseling. And if y'all try to figure it out, it's because you're nosy. Because God healed it so much, you wouldn't know who it was. But let me tell you about, come on. But let me tell you about people who have been in this church who have gotten offended over what one administrator said to them and never came back. How is it someone can go through the hardest time of their life and say, I trust you, pastor. I trust you, counselors. I trust you, life group. I trust you, church on Sundays. I'm going to live for Jesus and go through what could be the most devastating time. And somebody couldn't even get over one miscommunication. Somebody had their guard up. 
the other one let it down. Someone said, I'm going to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other one said, I'm going to get offended by people. You see, my friends, it's not the situation that determines the outcome. It's how you go through the situation that determines the outcome. It's what's in here that matters. As the old timers used to say, you never know what's on the inside until some heat's applied. Then it starts to come out like a teapot, starts to boil over. You get to see what people are really made of. And the devil would love to break you down. We learned about spiritual warfare. Take down your shield. He would love to see you take that down. Take off your helmet of salvation. But when you have it up, there is no weapon formed against you that can prosper. God will deliver you out of every temptation. Listen to me. I got another example. And they probably wouldn't even mind if I shared their name. But there's people we have in this church that can't even see their parents. And they haven't been able to for years. And when they had children, even their parents said, we're not coming over. Why? Because they're Christian. They denied their own children, denied their own grandchildren. And you would think those people who went through something like that in this church, they would be gone. Man, I cannot have my grandma, my mother as a grandmother to my children. I can't be in a wedding unless my mother or father is there. And yet they were faithful to Jesus. They kept up their guard. And yet, at the same time, I have witnessed somebody say something on a Facebook post, and they don't come back to church anymore. What are you made of if that's all it takes to get you out the church as a Facebook post? you got to keep up your guard, people. The devil is after your heart because get it. Everybody get this illustration. He had already said, Jesus said, I know you say the right things, and on the outside you're doing the right things. You don't tolerate wicked people or false apostles. You're willing to lay down your life for me, but you lack your first love. I want to guard my heart. I want to guard my first love. As a matter of fact, I want to give my first love to Jesus the day I die and say, Lord, I kept it this whole time. One of the professors I had in Bible college, he's in his 80s right now, and I'm helping him publish a commentary he wrote on the whole Bible. Every time I call him and he answers the phone, I say, Dr. O, how are you doing? You remember Dr. O? He goes, too blessed to be stressed, brother. And he said to me, he said, you want to know why I tell people that? He said, I say it in the grocery store. He said, I say it on every phone call. He said, I say it when I meet people at the gas station. He said, you want to know why I tell them that? So that they can know at 80 years old, God is still good. God has been faithful. And I want to be there. I want you to be there with me. Now, the question that sometimes people ask at this point is they say, Pastor, well, what was it? What was that last issue that knocked these guys out and put them right there on that line? I don't know. Pastor, after the book of Revelations, how many made it? How many didn't? I don't know. I don't know their business, in other words. And can I be honest with you? I don't know your business. There are things that are my business, and there are things that are not my business. And I think the Bible sets that as an example. It's not our business. But I can tell you this. I know my heart, and that's my business. It's my job to guard my first love, and it is your job to guard your first love.
And so if you're here today and you hear this preaching and you're like, Pastor, I can't quit what I haven't started. How can I lose what I don't have? I've never even loved Jesus like this before, to tell you the truth. You're in the right spot because now you can start to love Jesus and you can know what to avoid. Amen? Can I hear an amen? Amen. But for the great majority of us here, y'all have been here before. You've prayed prayers before. You've sung songs before. And so my question is to you, it's a very simple question. It's not have you stopped loving Jesus because everybody here is going to say they love Jesus. That's not the question. Here's the question. Was there ever a time in your life you loved Jesus more, more than how you love him right now? Because that's where it's all at, man. Because if there was ever a time you loved him more than you love him now, that love that is less, he says, ain't your best. If you love God less than you did before, you're not loving him with your best. So what makes the difference between people who stay and people who go? Or people who get offended over petty things, the love of God. What keeps people committed to marriages, even though it's not always going right? The love of God. What keeps people committed to churches and serving and helping out when they're tired? The love of God. What keeps people serving the Lord, even when family or friends or jobs or finances and hardships and trials come? The love of God. And what will our last word be? The last word of Ephesians is love. And I think our last word to God will be that we love him. That will be it. And in the book of Ephesians, what does it say? Who can know the width of God's love, the breadth of God's love, the length of God's love, and the height of God's love? His love is immeasurable and beyond all comprehension. I would challenge all of us today, preaching to myself, because guess what? I haven't even been saved 30 years. And the guys he's talking to were saved over 30 years. So here's the message for all of us. Here it is from Paul. Are you guys ready before we go? Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. If that's you, would you stand up today? Come on. Give a shout of praise and a hand clap of gratefulness to Jesus. Hallelujah. Grace and blessing upon us. All the altar workers and bands.